Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name's Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Good morning. As Morgan said, I'm Rachel, and um, I'm one of the pastors at First Winter Park. I was here with you last year, and it's good to be back with you. Uh, Just a little bit by way of introduction, I belong to these two. I'm their niece, Barbara and Ty, um, through my mom's uh, side, and um, it's good to be back. I'll tell you that before I was a pastor and ordained in 2016, I came to your church quite a lot to um, be recertified through the East Central District. And so I know this church well because I would meet back there every December with my East Central District committee. And um, those are always kind of intimidating experiences if you've never been to one. It's it's good for building character. Um, And then I would go and pray by your lake, that they would say yes. And then when they said yes, I'd go and celebrate at Jeremiah's with, with some Italian ice. So I, I have fond memories of this church, and it's good to be back with you and, and helping lead this morning. Uh, so thanks to Pastor Will and Pastor Chris for um, having me today. Uh, my husband, Ryan, is also a pastor. He's at Orange City United Methodist Church, and we have three tiny humans, uh, Emmeline, who's eight, and Charlie, who's five, and um, Ellie, who is 16 months. And so being a, a pastor, I know, she's not always, oh, though, um, she is a handful. Um, but being a pastor with three kids on Sundays is a lot. So if you think, pray for us on Sundays, that'd be great. Because we're at two different churches. Uh, but let me say a word of prayer and um, then uh, we'll dive into our, our scripture. Uh, good and gracious God, we thank you for already being present with us in the beautiful music, God. The powerful words about how you come to make beautiful things possible. Uh, thank you for our, my brothers and sisters as we worship you at the end of this year, as we, as we start our new year well, as we adore you and praise you and come uh, to give you ourselves in worship. Thank you for this church, God, for what it has meant to our community at large, for what it has meant for the United Methodist Church and the way they continue to grow and build leaders. God, we ask that you empower them and continue to build your kingdom right here in Maitland. We pray all this in your most holy name. Amen. Well, um, every December, like most of you, uh, we get our boxes down from the attic and we begin decorating. Uh, It usually is a few-day process with three tiny humans helping in the experience. And we hang outside lights, and we buy and decorate a Christmas tree, and we hang up those stockings and change the tablecloths and pillows and all of that. But my favorite decoration is the nativity. Uh, We have three or four. We have a soft little play one that the kids get to use. Uh, We have one of those willow tree faceless ones on our piano. And then we have our big elaborate uh, nativity that we place up on our fireplace. Now, I like to be theologically correct. So after I've put all the characters up, I do move the wise men 
over to a different location around the corner. Now, this year, and it, it does, it gives me an opportunity to talk to the kids about the journey, right? They weren't actually at the stable the night that Jesus was born. We're going to read that scripture in a minute. But I get, it gives me a chance to talk to the kids. So this year, I thought, wouldn't it be wise to put them up high in the playroom? So I go and I put them on top of the toy storage, give the whole spiel to the kids. Let's not destroy the wise men before they get a chance to get to Jesus. Let's give them a shot. Well, fast forward a couple weeks, I'm coming home from a late night meeting and Charlie, our five-year-old, greets me at the door with tears streaking face. And he says, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to. It was an accident. And he tells me that basically in all of his excitement and his energized state, which is the constant state of five-year-old boys, he managed to knock over the animal companion for one of the wise men, and now he is missing his porcelain backside. <sighs> so I knelt down, and I explained, we all make mistakes, and it's okay because God will still make a way, right? And so I knew even then that there was a preachable moment in that story. Often children bring that out in us, don't they? And so uh, let's read together uh, Matthew 2, uh, the story of our, you'll hear me call them wise ones because I'm sure there was women amongst them, but our wise men magi story from Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was, was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. Now, this is the prophet Micah. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of, Judea, of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house... They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Holy and loving God, would you speak through me a word to your people? God, we ask that the words that come out of my mouth would, would strengthen and encourage, would challenge and grow, and that all of us may leave transformed by this story, this powerful story of a journey that showed great promise. We pray all of this in your holy name. Amen. So what is the longest journey you've ever been on? 
Where were you going? How did you travel there? How did you get there? Who were you with? Well, as I was thinking about this story and about my own life experience, probably the most arduous journey I've ever been on was a bus trip, a 10-hour bus trip in rural Haiti. Now, my family, when I was 15 and my sisters were 11 and 9, we traveled with my church community, all five of us, to Northwest Haiti Mission for 10 days. I remember the night before, we had flown into Port-au-Prince, which is the capital, and we were in a hotel that blessedly had air conditioning. And we were meeting with the leader of the Northwest Haiti Mission, who also happened to be the bus driver. And he said, you know, we're really only going from Port-au-Prince to Port-au-Pay. And um, it's not that far, but the roads are so terrible. The distance is not that great, but we have to go so slow, it's going to take 10 hours. And he said, and here's how you'll know what this is going to be like. He said, when you've gotten to the point where you think you're just going to die, it's about two more hours after that. And my family and I, we still joke about this experience because really, as we've now done lots of other traveling as a family, we always point back to that arduous journey in rural Haiti and say, if we could have gotten through that, we could get through anything. And I wonder what the wise ones thought as they traveled the rural roads of the ancient Near East. Probably not very good roads in those days either. Now, we assume they rode by camel. The scripture doesn't tell us that. They could have ridden by caravan or horse. We assume that there were three because of the gifts, but there was probably a lot more than that because the wise ones traveled with companions. They had to have tents and animals and food for the long journey. The bottom line is, we don't know all the exact details, but we know that they came from the east, and it took about two years. At this point, Mary and Joseph are in a house. So let's look together at a map that shows us the likely journey of the Magi. Now, I'm sure you have all been praying for this area of our world right now in the midst of so much conflict and war. I had a, the privilege of going to the Holy Land. If you've been to the Holy Land, you may recognize some of these uh, cities. But if you look up here, the first line you'll notice is the red line. This is the Abrahamic route that's now called the Transjordanian Spice Route. So it starts up in the east in Syria, and it moves down by the sea or down towards the middle of Judea. The green line is what the Magi would have followed. They would have followed down the Jordanian um, spice route all the way down through Judea, through the hilly, the hilly part of Judea, into Jerusalem and past Jericho. So they go through Jericho, they're in Jerusalem, and that's where they stop and they meet King Herod and say, you know, we've been following this star. Where is the, the baby-born king of the Jews? And then the blue line, if you can see the blue line, there's two probable lines that they would have followed, uh, followed to leave. Remember being, born, or being warned in the dream? They had to avoid King Herod. Now, if you've been to the Holy Land, you know that King Herod not only had a residence in Jerusalem, that is where his government was located, but he had lots of vacation homes throughout, little fortresses around. So the wise ones had to be very wise about how they exited the country. So those are two probable routes that they could have taken 
a southern route to get back to head north. So I hope that helps. I love maps. I love trying to imagining myself. But you can see the amount of countries, uh, probably different languages, people groups that they traveled through over two years uh, to get there. All right. So we know they came from Babylon. Uh, in those days, it was called Parthia. And these wise ones were among the home of, uh, they were at home in the academias and the libraries. We call them magi, but they weren't magicians. They were more astrologers, astronomers. They studied the stars, and they were um, in wonderment and amazement because of the stars. We also know around this time that in Babylon, there still existed a pretty large and influential group of uh, Jewish brothers and sisters. Now, we know the, the Jews were taken in exile to Babylon. Now, not all of them returned back to Judea. Some of them stayed. They actually found it to be more economically prosperous for them to stay in Babylon. And so the Magi, the wise ones, have been influenced by their neighbors, by their Jewish neighbors who have told them the stories, have um, shared with them about the Hebrew Bible, and they, of course, know the prophecies uh, that they have heard. So they see the star, they know their community, and they pack up their caravan and they begin this long journey. It's most likely that they did travel the Jordanian spice route all the way to Jerusalem from Jericho and then left through a southern route. We also know that the Magi um, did a journey that was at per great personal risk to them. They were moving into a land that they didn't speak the language, they didn't know the people groups, and they were very much outside their own comfort zone to a land known only to God. Yet they overcome every obstacle. They persisted as travelers, and they rejoice when they at last gaze on the divine child face to face. When I think through this story again, about their journey from the east to Bethlehem and back. It, it really, to me, is a story of a balance between threat and promise. The arduous journey was threat enough, right? And yet we know that King Herod, this isn't the same King Herod that later appears at the end of Jesus's life, that's the son. This King Herod is at the end of his reign, and he is paranoid. He is so afraid that uh, someone is going to take his throne. So he is paranoid, and so that presents a threat as well. And yet the wise ones don't turn back. They don't give up. They keep going with grit and persistence because the promise is greater than the threat. And really, if we think about Jesus' whole life, from the very beginning, Jesus presents a threat, a threat to the religious establishment of the day, a threat to King Herod and his government. Jesus was a threat in the eyes of many. From the very beginning, those that are bent to destroy him. And yet, Jesus is also a promise. Whether on a hill of Calvary or in Bethlehem, he was and still is a promise. So brothers and sisters, in the midst of our fears, as we journey in our own faith, we can emulate the wise ones by paying homage and coming and worshiping God, by replacing our fear and worries of the unknown. Instead, replace it with adoration and the offering of ourselves as living sacrifices. 
Now, when you think about our own life kind of being in the middle of threat and promise, can you think of an experience like this where you pursued a promise even though there was a threat because you viewed the promise as greater than the threat? I'll give you some examples from my own church and my own life. Maybe you've pursued a relationship that led to the promise of marriage, but you had to overcome the failures and the fears of previous relationships and stepped out in faith. Or maybe you have loved ones that have walked through a difficult pregnancy or were at high risk in their health, but they saw it through because of the promise of a child. That promise outweighed the threat and the fear of the unknown. Or maybe you've moved jobs or transitioned careers or pursued higher education at the threat of rising debt or sleepless nights or uncomfortable new beginnings because, once again, the promise shined brighter or outweighed the darkness of the what if. And if you can remember an experience like this, where was God in all of that? Did God walk beside you on this dangerous journey? Did you feel alone? Maybe it was on this journey that you found God or your faith was strengthened. And so if we can point to a time when God saw us through this threatening experience, whatever it may be, and delivered us a promise, God will do it again and again. And if God does it for the outsider, the wise ones, the, the non-Jewish, non-religious ones from the East, then God can do it for us all. The problem is that we often forget that God is moving amidst and amongst those that are so very different from us. But isn't that one of the things that makes us distinctly Wesleyan? in our theology, in our practice, this belief that, that God's grace goes before us and behind us and within us to carry us through times of threat towards seasons of promise, that we don't walk through fearful or threatening or dark situations to test our faith. We walk through it so that God's grace may shine through and strengthen us in the journey. And so if we can see a little bit of our story in the story of the wise ones, what does it make us want to do? How do we use this teaching? How does it change us? Well, having not been a part of this congregation, I, I don't know what God may be working on in your hearts this morning. I thought I would just suggest three things that, that came up for me as I was reading the text, and then let the Holy Spirit do the work. I have found that even if I've read a story many, many times, every time I come back to it, the Holy Spirit breathes something new, a new perspective or learning as I take it in and hear it. And so today, the title of the sermon was this. Uh, it is the journey, not always the destination. Now, as you wrestle with what that means, I'm by no means implying that meeting the Christ child wasn't as important as the journey. In fact, I would argue that meeting the Christ child was the single greatest moment in the lives of the wise ones and their companions ever. But often, I don't know about you, but I get so hyper-focused on the destination that I forget to enjoy the journey. Think about the wise ones for a minute. Think about all that they saw. 
and all who they met along the two-year journey that they were on. Think back to the map we just saw and all of the places that they passed through as they were starting from the east, moving south, all the towns they stopped in, all of the people they interacted with who were far different from their own in Babylon. I believe they were changed through that journey. And so if we take that a step further, how do we see our own personal and communal journeys with following Jesus? It isn't just the destination that matters. Uh, we have met people that feel differently about that statement, that would disagree. They would say that ending up in heaven and enjoying eternal life with God is the main point. Everything else doesn't matter. But those same people, I fear, miss out on how God will make them holy in the journey by helping bring heaven to earth through them. As Wesleyans, of course, we call this sanctification. God isn't finished with me. God isn't finished with you. Praise God for that, that there is still more refining and more redeeming that needs to take place. So we don't want to shortchange this transformative journey that we are on together because we're in too much of a hurry to get to the destination. A second point that stood out to me that I had never noticed before in all these years of reading this story is something that the commentaries actually brought out for me. And it was an important point living in today's world. King Herod knew the scriptures. I hadn't noticed that before. He knew the right questions to ask. He knew the right people to bring to the table. He knew enough about the Hebrew Bible to know that it threatened his power if this prophecy came to fruition. And he knew enough to bring in his chief priests and his scribes to the table to confirm that threat, which tells me the hard truth that not everyone who knows their Bible is a person that is safe and believable. We can't be fooled by people who know a little scripture and can recite it or or use it in an argument, or arrange it in a flowery speech. Even the Bible tells us that the evil one knew Holy Scripture and used it to test Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And we know that it's not just enough to know Bible verses or stories or phrases that can often be taken out of context. What matters, brothers and sisters, is how the Scripture is internalized takes root in us and is then lived out. We know from this story that King Herod was unable to do that. He could not lay down his own ego or power or prestige to truly welcome the Messiah into the world. And so, I don't know about you, but I read this part of the story as a warning to use my God eyes, to use my wisdom, to not always trust someone that knows the words of Scripture, but to believe them only when the words are acted out and lived upon and in a sacrificial life consistently is lived out. And we see a lot of powerful people these days, don't we, using Scripture to justify their power. I believe God is asking us here to use our wisdom in deciding whether they are voices we listen to and follow. And lastly, one other thing that came up for me in the reading of this was how the wise ones bring their best to Jesus. 
Now, as a mom, I would have much rather the wise ones bring diapers and other practical things, but we know that the wise ones are bringing gifts that foretell Jesus' future. And we know that it actually connects back to 800 years before the birth of Jesus through the prophet Isaiah. In that, you will read in chapter 60 these words that foretell of the wise ones. Our scripture is Isaiah 61 through 6, and it says this, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. It's Isaiah 61 through 6. Again, 800 years before the birth of Jesus, this is what the prophet tells us. We come to bringing our gifts, stewarding them well, giving God our best, not just of our resources, but our time and our talent, as well as our treasure. And we give it not just because that is what is required of us, but because all we have is God's anyways. And we are generous people. And because when we really meet the Christ child, we can't help but respond. And so as you go forth in this new year, filled with both the reality of the threat that is ever-present in our lives and the light of God's promise, remember the words I told my son when the bull from the nativity lost half of his porcelain backside. Nothing can stop God. God will always make a way. And as you begin a new journey, as you begin this new year, there will be pressure and tension and threats. That's the reality of the world we live in. But my encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, is to look for the promises. Know that God will always make a way. And like the wise ones. Try to enjoy the journey. Look for God on the route. You will find the divine if you look close enough. Let us pray. Holy and loving God, we give you thanks for this word of the wise ones and what it means to us as we let it minister to our hearts and our lives. Help us to Name with reality that which threatens and that which we are afraid of, God. But let us not be people of fear, but let us be people of courage as we continue to walk on this journey of following you, as we continue to look for your promise. We give you thanks that your light has come into the world and that no darkness could ever overcome it. We thank you for this church, God, and for these brothers and sisters that follow you and love you and have given their lives to serve you. 
Be with us now in this new year that we will continue to faithfully follow, regardless of the journey we are on. We pray all this in your holy name. Amen.